Hey, this is Farah, and you're listening to House Nine's Art and Humanity podcast. In this episode, I speak with filmmaker, writer, director, producer, and all-around awesome human Rubaiyat Hussain. Rubaiyat has won countless awards, and her films have premiered at festivals all over the world, including TIFF. Rubaiyat's films center around the lives and experiences of Bangladeshi women from all walks of life, and her rich and compassionate storytelling make her characters instantly and universally relatable. Her films are also beautiful and should be required viewing for anyone who has moved away from Bangladesh and misses home, or for anyone who wants to get a sense of what it's really like to be there. In this episode, we talk about her films, of course, and of large and small acts of power, resilience, and transgression. I hope you enjoy. Uh, so, Rubaya, thank you so much for wanting to talk to me today. Um, it's I've, I've wanted to have this conversation with you for years, and, uh, you know, just so the audience knows really quickly, um, you and I, we went to Smith College together and we're both from Bangladesh. So, um, yeah, we've got quite a few things in common. I'm, we're women from Bangladesh who went to Smith. So I feel like that covers like a pretty big range of things we have in common. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I think I'm excited to, um, you know, to kind of catch up with you. Sometimes I think it's strange that it's been so long, but I think what we are doing today is um, some of it is definitely because of we went to Smith and um, how we were nurtured there. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you'd agree, but for me, uh, going to Smith has very much helped me um, to have the courage to kind of realize my dreams, you know? I completely agree. It wasn't maybe the most academically strong period in my life because I was, you know, trying to find myself. But Yeah, yeah. Same for me. <laughs> Same for me. Oh, man. But it's true. Yeah, you, you learn these things about what it is to become an adult human, I suppose. I mean, it's not like it ever stops, you know, like four years of university doesn't really give you everything. But it's that first taste, right, of like not living in Bangladesh, in your parents' house and having very little autonomy and all of a sudden you have so much and it's it's a bit it's a bit overwhelming, right? Like for myself, I didn't quite know what to do with myself. So I was like, I'm just gonna do everything. Yeah, me too. And I feel like I did I did more work outside of my classroom than I did in my classroom, you know. I totally agree. I totally agree. You know, talking about your work. So you're a filmmaker and um I've seen two of your films and they are absolutely magnificent so I've seen uh, Made in Bangladesh and I've seen Under Construction and oh my gosh I have so many questions and I just want to hear so much about um, the whole process but I think perhaps I'm going to start with this question around just the very very nuanced storytelling Um, especially in Under Construction there's not a lot of dialogue you know you have these scenes that are pretty Um, you know, they're just, they're really beautiful and, um, they're very pointed. Um, and, and then when the dialogue does happen, it's so strong, right? Like you say so much with so little. So, um, my, my question to you is, I I know that telling women's stories is really important, but, um, tell me about bringing that level of nuance to the storytelling. 
You know, um, <clears throat> when I write a script, what I think about is actual conversations uh, that you can overhear at a restaurant or a subway station or just, you know, having conversations with your friends. Like if you record your own conversation, you'd see that it reveals so much about us. Um, and so when I write, I try to make it real, you know. So when I have my script, I would take the script to my actors and then we'd read it a lot together. And I'd ask the actors to make the dialogues their own, you know, how they would say it. And oftentimes it becomes, um, the dialogues become very real through this process, you know. Uh, when the actor is who has internalized the character is able to own those words and deliver them in their own way, um, I think that's, that's when we often find um, uh, there's a natural element to it. And in terms of nuances, I think that it depends from film to film. Like Made in Bangladesh has a lot more, it's much more verbal than under construction. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot more dialogue going on because it is, the content, you know, the type of space the story is set into. Um, so I think it varies from film to film, but I, I'm. it's also something that I'm trying to experiment with my own work is, that, is I'm trying to go towards um, relying more on sound and colors and visual and creating a certain atmosphere or... Um, a psychological state for the audience. You know, that's something that I'm very much doing in the project that I'm writing now. I think the word atmosphere is perfect because, yeah, the, the, the movies are very atmospheric. Um, I saw Under Construction, um, I actually watched it twice, <laughs> you know, like watching the next time, like I need to watch that again. Um, I, there There is so much about that film that, um, identif that I identified with personally, um, just not having been in Taka for, I think at this point, it's been maybe 15 or 16 years. Um, and people tell me, you know, my friends who were there, my family, you know, they're like, oh, you won't recognize it. It's so different. But seeing, um, there's a scene where, you know, that little Gulshan 2 mosque that has like a little onion dome where it looks like a little garlic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was such a landmark for me growing up. And when I was little, it was just like that little dome sticking out, you know, above this pretty dense tree line. <laughs> and yeah. I saw it in the pic in, in one of the stills. I was like, I had to pause it and stare at it and be like, what in God's name am I looking at? Is there another one yeah. of those mosques somewhere else in the city? Oh no, this is Gulshan. Like this is, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> um, but even like the little things like, um, there's the part where, uh, uh, Roya, she's talking to her husband in the car and these uh, kids are, um, trying to sell her flowers outside the window and the way that the kids are like droning on about, you know, you buy the flowers and the way that they're also being ignored by the people in the car. Like there's these like tiny like yeah. specks of these moments like littered throughout the movie and I was like god like there's so much here well you know that's something growing up in Taka I think we all go through those moments you know mm -hmm. uh, when you're having a private conversation in your car and somebody's banging on the on the car window and we we lose our sensitivity to a level that we don't care you know mm -hmm. um, that there's a kid outside or there's these really old women trying to sell Vogue outside your car window. And I think Dhaka is in that way. Um, the society is so 
I almost feel like it's a caste system, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, The spaces that each class is able to inhabit is uh, very, very strongly um, isolated, I would say, because, you know, you see also see that between Roya and her and her housemate. Mm -hmm. And this is something that had happened to me growing up that I would get uh, particularly close with the person who's working in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, like almost become friends and then, then reality would strike and they would have to go home and get married. And um, so I think we grew up with these realities. And when I was making a film under construction for me, it's, it's about a lot of things. But one of the things that it's about is I try to represent my city, which was changing so rapidly and had become so loud. You know, Dhaka, you know, it changed so much from the time we grew up. And then it also the change was very, very loud because we were hearing construction noises everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also part of the film that you you hear these uh, construction noises. That's so true. It's it's funny, this idea of construction and like living in what is a permanent construction zone. I mean, I'm sure our Montreal listeners will be like, oh yeah, like Montreal City, like the roads are always under construction. Um, but it's true that construction was such a big, like, metaphor and literal state of being for me growing up in Malish because our house was always under construction Um, because you know uh, historically speaking we have these you know like these massive uh, intergenerational families that live together and as you know Taka's you know um, like modernized over time and people have been moving more towards single family homes there's been this transition of like how do we accommodate this space for three families living together or four families or now it's just one family so you know it's a like concrete walls coming down, going up, like mysteries running around everywhere, the ever-present smell of like paint. I don't know if you had a similar experience. Uh, Growing up, not so much, you know. I think growing up, I didn't see a lot of construction, but then I think late 90s, it's really, I started noticing it really badly. Mm -hmm. And our house used to be the tallest house uh, and used to be by the lake. And then all of a sudden it became like, there was another house um, on reclaimed land over the lake. There was a big hotel that went up 14 stories uh, next to our house. And actually, that's when I was um, also scripting for under construction. I was like, I'm so pissed off, you know, and I'm so tortured that I'm going to put this in a film, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that. You mentioned, you know, if we keep talking about Bangladesh and life in Bangladesh, when we spoke before the interview, one of the things that you said to me that really struck me was, um, you know, there are these parallels uh, in the characters in your films and, uh, you know, parallels among them, but also with you as the filmmaker, right? And like the the ways in which women find liberty and power uh, in the work that they do and in the lives that they lead. Um, and you were saying that being a filmmaker has afforded you um, certain rights when I grew up, I never thought that I'd be a filmmaker. That was not an ambition that I had when I was a little girl, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that I'd be a painter or study literature. And then, you know, of course, when I when I came to Smith, I uh, majored in women's studies. And that really shifted everything for me because I felt that growing up in Bangladesh, ever since I was very young, I was very conscious of gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very conscious about the fact that I was a girl, 
because I, I was told that you're a girl, you know, um, and you need to have a brother because you don't have a brother. It's a problem, you know. Um, so growing up, I kind of knew that it was part of my consciousness. And um, I always wanted to do something about it. I did not want to be a secondary person, you know, if that makes sense. Oh, like in Bangladesh, the way you grow up, like I, I did not want to be that. I really wanted to, you know, claim a place for myself. And I knew growing up, I knew that this space would not be given to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to carve it out. And it's it's quite difficult in a place like Bangladesh, you know. Um, and <clears throat> I think my... Uh, like when I was like 20, I was like a sophomore in college or like a junior. That's when I started really seriously thinking about wanting to make films. I took those video production workshops. Um, and then I also did a workshop with New York Film Academy. So I was kind of preparing myself um, that, okay, maybe this is something I would do. And I felt that I was good at it. I enjoyed it. And I kind of took it up more seriously starting my early 20s. And as I worked, it was immensely challenging for me in the beginning, but as I kept working, I felt that it opened up this space for me uh, to even explore Bangladesh the way I've never explored it before. Uh, like when I shot Nehjan, I went to these villages and we shot there these little flowers and the water bodies, like all these small details that I've never even seen before. Uh, and I was not free to explore um, a countryside like that. But because I was doing a film, I was with my unit, I was able to do that. Similarly, in under construction, um, you know, I've never been out on the streets of Dhaka like that or to a slum um, or inside factories the way I did when I had to research for the film. I had to shoot the film until literally live there, you know. Uh, and I remember one night, it was three in the morning, I was sitting... I was shooting a scene, um, you know, that scene with the with the children banging on the window. We actually filmed that at like three or four in the morning. Wow. Um, yeah, because it was all our production cards. We, we set this thing up. And I remember during filming that scene, I was sitting in the middle of Gulshan to three in the morning. I was smoking a cigarette. I was like, you know, this would have never happened if I didn't make a film. Um so I also get a certain amount of freedom and respect in a very patriarchal place like the Film Development Corporation of Bangladesh where 99% directors are men. Um, so I think that I I enjoy that about film because I think when we talked about this before, I also mentioned that I feel that film uh, is a space um, where you can make a lot of trans questions. You know, you can bend different rules. Uh, and I always bring up this example of Dorothy Arzner, who was making films in early Hollywood. She was the first, she made the first um, talkie for Paramount. And even before that, Silent Era, she made so many films. Uh, and she was a queer woman. She dressed in suits and she directed her actress on a set, you know. And it was okay because she was on the set. She was accepted. Uh, similarly, with somebody like Rita Pornoghosh, who, who, who was always performing his gender uh, in a society like Kolkata, which is very, very, you know, heteronormative society. Uh, and he was ridiculed, but he was still respected. He won all these national awards and he was a nationally respected figure. 
because he was working in cinema. At least that's how I interpret it, you know. Um, and I feel that similarly for myself, I have been able to do things, go places, um, have experiences because I, I do this job. I, I love what you said about um, transgression being tolerated, you know, in the name of theater, in the name of performance, and in the name of the work that's done around it. I, I think it's really interesting that you've been able to find that place for yourself within that. So you were saying that you were able to like enter these spaces and be in these spaces um, uh, where you normally wouldn't have been. Um, I know that a big part of that is, you know, you mentioned the cast, you know, we don't have like a cast system in name, but we definitely have one in practice. So these segregated societies that we grew up in, right, and the stories that you're telling, you know, these women, they inhabit, all, you know, all different walks of life. Can you tell me a little bit about how you um like in your writing process like what how what have you learned from the women that inhabit these different lives to be able to bring this richness and um you know accuracy to the stories you're telling one of the things i've learned or i not only in my film but just you know when i when i went to major in women's studies back in 1998 susan van Dyne was the department chair and she gave me a button that said um, you know uh, I study women in a major way and you know because it was a women's studies major it was a big joke and I, mm-hmm. I think I've been doing that I, I, I say that I've been doing that since 1998 is mm-hmm. trying to study women in a major way um, through all my work uh, and my life and um, also through my own experiences as a woman which is not always that I'm liberated I'm also struggling Um different points of my life and I've had to struggle. So um, one of the things is that, you know, women are not a homogeneous group. Yeah. So you have to look at inter- intersectionality um, of religion, of caste, of education, you know, uh, privileges, because uh, emancipation could mean very different things and for different women. And especially class is something you cannot factor out of this race is something you cannot factor out of this. You always have to look at those things. Um, for example, if you think about uh, Roya's relationship with her housemate, who's almost a muse for her to create this um, play for her stage, mm-hmm. she does have a certain amount of privilege. It's like it's like me, who goes and I I can make a movie about a woman who's been a factory worker, a union president, and made in Bangladesh and. Um, one of the things I was very conscious about in Made in Bangladesh that her experience has to come through and it has to be a teamwork. Right. Um, and in that process, I learned so much from her. Uh, and we became friends. And I think that's also been possible. We came out of our segregated spaces because we were working on a set together. Because when you make films, it's a very physical job. But everybody's on the ground together. Um, and there's uh, there's a sense of... And what I actually do is on my set, that first day of the shoot, I gave everybody a gamcha. Mm-hmm. So everybody has a gamcha. And we need that because you sweat. And so so everybody feels like they're a team. Mm-hmm. And then you, you can really be friends. And you don't care who's coming from what class. And we had a multiracial... Uh, crew and people were coming from different countries and didn't speak the language, but the job kind of brings you together. 
And I think with Dalia, the woman, uh, the union president who inspired me in Bangladesh, Dalia and I became good friends through the shoot. And she's somebody that I consulted every step of the way while writing the script, um, polishing up the dialogue, even presenting the film uh, for its premiere in um, in Paris and Copenhagen last year. So it's been something like a, a, of a learning curve for me because one of the things that I realized that uh, we think that because we're educated, oh, I went to Smith College and I majored in women's studies, so I'm, I'm going to be, I'm probably really liberated. But actually a factory worker who had to drop out of school fifth grade is more liberated than me, turns out, you know? Uh, because she has a lot less to lose and she's been fighting so hard. And I and I think that was very surprising for me to find out that working class women in Bangladesh actually um, are more independent and they live their life more in their own terms than women who, who come from more privileged classes. That is incredible. Like, are there kind of specific examples you know, for example, you think about a girl who left home when she was 11 because her parents wanted to marry her off. She left home, stole her father's wallet, came to the city, and started working as housemates and later as um, in factories. So, you know, this kind of, like, we were so sheltered, you know, when you're 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that experience prepares her to, to fight more you know, to do things that she's doing, to take up these huge battles with these corporations and with with Islamization and the way they have to live their lives by going out, like we go out in a car or, you know, something, and they're always outside walking or in a bus, really navigating the public space, I feel, more than I am, at least in Bangladesh, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not capable, I'm not capable of navigating the public. Like, when I go out, like I go out with my team for my research or my Reiki or my shoot. But if you put me to live in that slum, I don't think I'd do very well. Um, <laughs> and I see these women who, who are doing that. And she's so incredibly young. She became a union president when she was like 24, 25. Uh, and I, I feel that as a privileged women, especially in, in Bangladesh, if you, there are a certain amount of social privileges and that comes with the fat price also. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that I'm trying to write about in my next film, which is about this, um, you know, the tri-state, like the ladies who lunch, how they often would have a degree from a private college and, you know, maybe uh, now they're doing something of great meaning in Bangladesh. Uh, but also there are certain restrictions that comes with being a privileged woman, you know, being somebody's daughter, being somebody's wife. Um and, and and I feel like the patriarchal norms are stricter in, in this space, rather than when you go to a slum, it, it's it's more fluid. I've seen so many factory workers who engage in, um, you know, they, they would have an affair, they would have a divorce. There's not a lot of stigma around those things. I think there's way more stigma in the privileged classes, like the middle class, the upper class. They have more stigma around issues of sexuality, issues of uh, morality, you know, uh, family ties, etc. Whereas I think women who are living, th- these women living are more on the edge. So in, in a way, they're more free. They're taking more risks. And 
they also have they don't have any strings attached. They don't have a dad or a husband, you know, and they kind of run their own life. My God, I never have really thought about it that way. But I have this working theory, which I know is a very flawed working theory. And it's not universal because I feel like if I said this to somebody in a war-torn area, they'd be like, I don't know what great things I'm getting out of this situation. Um, But I'd say like kind of generally speaking, you gain something, but you kind of give something up for it, right? Like this sort of sacrifice. So in in what you're saying even though it might not be universal but for a you know a large portion of these women what they don't have in you know riches um they have in liberty and freedom and ability um so there there's this balance right like like there's no one who can have everything like there's there's some aspect of challenge and there's some aspect of privilege whatever that might be um, would you agree to that? I was thinking about what I said. You know, one cannot really generalize, right? No. I shouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not generalizing. But I'm saying in my observation, uh, this is my observation that when I worked with Dahlia and we were working very closely together, mm-hmm. I saw that in many ways I was more fragile, you know? Uh, and I also don't want to romanticize the factory worker. That's definitely not something I want to do. What I'm trying to say is when I'm going into this slum to meet this woman, I'm like 36 or 37, and then she's 24, pregnant, eight months pregnant, union president, and I'm like, wow, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's also busting like Yaba joints because her husband is uh, becoming an addict. So she's like taking police to these drug joints and busting them. And she's 24, you know? And I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, this is incredible. Like, look how fearless she is. That's one of the things that I felt, is that this girl is so fearless. She lives in the slum in Dhaka, and she's taking up these drug lords. She's fighting with her factory managers and owners, and she's fighting with her husband, too. Maybe in Bangladesh, for me, was like going into the story, I was like, how does she find that strength, you know? Um, I wanted to show the bravery of this woman because I think we, we don't pay tribute to these women. We think that they're, oh, they're factory workers or they're not educated, but we don't, we don't know how, uh, how incredibly strong they are. Uh, and the amount of hard work that they put in into making those clothes and also the amount of hard work they put in outside uh, to uh, establish themselves as, as independent women in society, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I hear you on not wanting to romanticize. But yeah, it does make sense that it really depends on what you have to lose, right? So when you're in a position where, you know, you don't have much to lose, and really everything to gain, you are gonna fight. But if you're like, I got to protect like my house or my husband's reputation, (laughs) that freedom, it becomes less accessible for sure. Um, Wow. You know, listening to what you're saying, it makes me feel um, so proud of of these women. Like, I, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about them. You know, like you hear kind of the horrible stories, right? Like exactly. You hear about the Rana Plaza fire. You hear, you know. You see the dead bodies. You see them as victims. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Like, you know, you see them as victims. You're like, oh, my God, this poor woman. She has to work in a garments factory. That is really that sucks for her. Um, oh, she's so poor. She lives in a slum. And like, yes and yes. But uh, 
but yeah, the, that, the resilience and the strength, like that's never really, um, you know, making the headlines. Um, so you mentioned, you alluded to your, your third film that you're working on, um, Pink Blossom. I mean, mainly for my own selfishness, I just want to know when it's getting made because <laughs> the other two that I've seen are so amazing. This, I, I plan to finish the script by the end of this year. Okay. And then we'll go for financing and financing of these films are always very tricky. We never know uh, if a film would get financed or not, but that's not something I try to think about when I write. Um, and like I said, you know, uh, women belonging to different social classes are going to navigate their spaces uh, in different ways. They're going to negotiate for their individuality in different ways. So um, made in Bangladesh, I was looking at a working class woman. And then for uh, under construction, it was a theater actor, it was a middle class educated woman. And then for Pink Blossom, you could see it's, it's part of my trilogy, and it's it's about the ladies who lunch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to, and I'm not, it's not that I'm trying to, but it's just happening naturally. A lot of the story is taking place inside of a beauty salon, you know. So mm-hmm. when we talk about these spaces, the beauty salon is also a space where it's very much of a bubble, you know. Who mm-hmm. goes to who, which salon, you know, defines kind of who they are, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like a click. Um, and not everybody is going to be accepted into any salon. Um, like I'm talking about the Dhaka scene. You know, yeah, I don't yeah. know if you're part, like I, you, you didn't go to Dhaka for a very long time, but I kind of, I started going to these salons when I was like 18 and I've like still go, you know? Um, and I've always observed these spaces, the kind of conversations that happen. It's such a private space. It's a women only space. Um, women are providing each other with comfort, uh, and they're also relaxing, but it's also a space where a certain uh, brand of femininity is being manufactured. So it's it's a it's a space where, like you know, when a bridal makeup is done, it's almost like a mask on a woman's face. Mm-hmm. So this beauty salon is a space where the mask is being manufactured, and you can also see the women behind the mask who struggle to contain themselves in these in these roles, you know. So I, I love working in that space, and it's uh, I'm kind of having fun writing this story, and we'll see where it goes. And it, it's going to be more atmospheric. It's going to be, it's it's more like a stream of consciousness. So we, it's the story is set in only three days, and so we go into images that are inside these women's head, and we go in into urban legends that have to do around a woman who had died in the salon. Um, so yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be quite cool if I can make it. I hope you can. I'm getting chills listening to you <laughs> um, and talking about it. Um, I, I watched both of the movies um, with my partner, and she's she's white she's Irish so she and she's never been to Bangladesh and she has no context right we talk about it all the time um you know our big joke is that I understand so much about Irish culture because I've been there so many times and you know they're so open but you know she knows very little I just taught her the difference between a a samosa and a shingara the other day um yeah (laughs) so um (laughs) I, I mean, here, literally, they sell shingaras and they call them samosas. And I was like, I got to put yeah, my yeah. down. That, that was like one, right of the big culture <laughs> That's like one of the big culture shocks when I come to come to Smith, that they're giving me these shingaras and calling them samosas. <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly. So, um, so I, I mean, I know that for 
myself, like your films, uh, they've connected me to a place that I left so long ago on such a deep, uh, like, you know, intellectual and emotional level. Um, so obviously I want to see Pink Blossom get made. Um, it really speaks to the universality of your storytelling. Like Allison loved them. She had such a great understanding of what was going on. And she identified like with the films on quite a deep level. So um, like really, really well done. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to hear that because you know, I need a global audience because I don't have a big audience in Bangladesh because it's not that I don't have a big audience. There are a lot of people who really want to watch my film and, uh, you know, people who have watched it really appreciate it. But because of censorship, because of lack of distribution for independent cinemas, uh, it's been hard for me to get my film widely distributed in Bangladesh. Like my first film was pulled out of theaters under construction was in theaters. It had two national awards, which was great. Uh, but you know, it didn't do very well in theaters because we couldn't push the promotion of the film the way we needed to because we didn't have a distributor. I had to self-distribute, which could get very tiring once you've made the film. It's not a filmmaker's job at all. Uh, for Made in Bangladesh, I had distributors in, in I have distributors in different territories and they have been taking care of those um, release in those territories but in Bangladesh I do not have uh, a distributor yet so again I'm going to have to go down the route of trying to distribute the film myself you know first I'm going to have to apply to the censor board and then what, what are they going to say so it's, it's a big it's a big road for me trying to get my films to theaters in Bangladesh so with Made in Bangladesh I might even for, for Bangladesh territory like go for put it on some VOD you know, mm-hmm. some theaters and VOD so more people can access it. And one of the things I really want is I want factory workers to be able to watch this film. Yes. Um, and they can watch it. Like I talk to them, they don't actually go to theaters because they don't have that kind of time. Mm-hmm. And theaters are also not women-friendly spaces in Bangladesh yes. at all. Uh, so they watch, they watch films like on their phone or computer. So, you know, in that way, I could reach them, I guess. But still, you have to censor the film which is a big hurdle you know, for me always. Yes, yes, the censorship aspect. Um, I, I know I keep coming back to Under Construction, but there are a couple scenes in there. I was, like, I was so impressed by them. I was like, damn, she's got some like sexy stuff in here. Like, like how, how did that pass? Or did it even pass? Did you have to cut those scenes out? I mean, they're so significant, right? I mean, the first scene is, is really upsetting and lonely, but it's there. Well, we, for the Bangladesh version, the first scene... I kept a little bit of the first scene, just the tail end of it. Mm. Um, and then the other two scenes, I did not even put in front of the censor board because I knew it was not going to be accepted. And they would just talk about this bit of the movie and not talk about the rest of the story. So for Bangladesh version, I made another cut where it was more suggestive, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was more suggestive that, okay, she was having one of those moments with this other guy. It was quite clearly suggested that it was not so uh, visually graphic as it was for the International Cup. Mm, okay okay so there's like i'm this is just like me curious as a as a view as as a super fan i think that's what i'm going to call myself from now on like <laughs> like not a viewer a super fan um so there are different scenes in in the bengali version or the Bangladeshi version 
Yeah, th- those those teams are not there. Right. I mean, so they're replaced, but it's not just that they're cut out. There's like alternate um, scenes that aren't. No, no, no. Well. There are no alternate scenes. There's okay. no alternate scenes. It's just those those scenes are not there. Perfect. Um, perfect. And it's it's something that I learned to do because I I realized that making a film in Bangladesh, releasing a film in Bangladesh, is not a straightforward process. You have to navigate your way. You have to negotiate through these censor um, boards, distributors, this and that. So each film is is a is a process. Right, right. You know how you can buy like bootleg VCDs in in Dhaka. Like I don't know if you still can or God knows what they are these days. Um, but uh, Ali actually has a bootleg VCD of. Um, Oh God! What's that movie? It's like that Christmas movie with the Mariah Carey song, "Love Actually." Do you remember "Love Actually"? Mm-hmm. So you know the storyline with the uh, with the couple that are the the movie extras. Mm-hmm. Um, that entire storyline is completely removed, completely from the uh, fr- from that Korean version. Oh wow! I remember we like they don't even exist in the movie. So we got to the end of it and we're like, wow, that movie's like over a lot faster than I thought, wasn't it? Like, (laughs) we're like, oh my God, there's this whole piece missing. Um, When we were talking about Made in Bangladesh, you brought up this misnomer that uh, even if, you know, you're looking at a shirt that's made in Bangladesh, it might not be entirely made in Bangladesh, right? When I, you know, I've never been interested in in the garment sector. It's not been one of my expertise. Um, But by... Doing this film, I, I got to know Dalia and then I got involved in her life and I learned a lot about it. Uh, one of the things that happened is after she did the film with me, she had gone to Jordan to work as a migrant worker. And it was really interesting because they were working in Jordan in a in a factory which was owned by Indian nationals. And the factory had employed women from Syria, Myanmar, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, you know, Jordan itself. So you have a factory in Jordan which is employing women from like all different places, uh, and you're going to buy a T-shirt that's going to say "Made in Jordan," but it could have been made by any one of these women. Um, so it's this new phenomenon. It's not also very new. It's, it's been happening for a long time that um, the trafficking of cheap labor across the globe. For me, that's very interesting, and I, especially to look at Bangladeshi women. Uh, Stepping um, out of their home, getting into a plane for the first time, traveling to a foreign country for the first time, also brings them up a totally different level of freedom and independence and mobility. At the same time, it comes with a whole other set of challenge of being a migrant worker, having your passport taken away, being in a country where you do not speak the language, uh, living in a dormitory and having these very fixed hours for work you know, giving prepackaged meals. Uh, so the, the, these are completely different human condition and how they live their entire lives on their phones because, you know, having eat on the phone with their kids at home for migrant workers. I've also seen a lot of these women when I go to Dhaka because I always travel to Doha or Dubai. Uh, so these uh, women would often have a doll in their hand that when they arrive in Bangladesh, they would just give it to their kids who would come to receive them at the airport. Um, and, and it's a very different story when, when a woman who's a mother goes to work because she needs to feed these kids 
um, it's another story, which is something that Dalia shared with me. And, you know, hopefully someday we would make a sequel of Made in Bangladesh, which would focus on um, the migrant worker issue. And if you have recently seen the news, a lot of women from Bangladesh are going to Saudi Arabia these days. And so many of them are coming back dead. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a story that I'd really like to follow and, if possible, um, make a film out of because I think these young women in Bangladesh contribute so heavily for our economy. I don't know if there's actually a research done or I'm sure there has been, but I'm not aware of it. But how much do these young women uh, factor in in our economy? You know, Bangladesh became a middle-income economy country largely because of um, exports from these ready-made garment sectors. All the labor is all coming from women. Um, so many women migrant workers are sending remittance home, uh, but these women are kind of, you know, they're discounted. They're because they're women. They're uneducated. Who cares? You know, let them die. Let them have poor wages. We're just going to ride on their backs. So I feel like it's a different type of exploitation because previously women were in the domestic realm, and now they have to step out, they get a job, and now their labor is being exploited in a, in a different way within a different structure. It's something that I'm really fascinated by, and I think it's something that I want to know more about and um, kind of go deep into. So, you know, Dali and I are sort of a team, so she will probably travel again somewhere to work. And I, I want to tap into this community of Bangladeshi women who live and work abroad in, you know, like in Saudi, it's mostly like... Um, um, like Saudi Arabia is mostly domestic labor. Bangladeshi women go also places, uh, they dance in different bars and they also work in factories. So they're, uh, they work as housemates also in some other countries. So it, it, it's a whole another universe that I knew nothing about. And I, I think I, I want to know more about these women who, because, because I think one of the things that I'm trying to do in my film is tell stories about women, the stories that are not told. You know, women who are there, and they're very significant, but we do not notice them. I kind of want to bring them out with a film where we can start a dialogue about these women. Like, yes, these women exist, and we need to talk about them. And I feel so strongly about about these migrant workers. That was incredible to to hear. Um, What do you think women who are not in a position to be part of this, you know, very exploitative and, like, disposable economy, um, like, what do you think we could do to support or help um, the women who are in these situations? It's a question I I get asked a lot, and I, I don't think there is an easy solution. A lot of people talk about boycott, which is very dangerous because then these women are going to lose their job. Um, one of the things I saw um, in my involvement with these women is education and training. They're both very important, so trying to support organizations that um, um, provide training for women in Bangladesh. Because if, if these women learn that language, they know that they have legal rights, they can fight for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of uh, it's a matter of giving them that opportunity so they can attend trainings and they can learn and they can speak for themselves. Um, at least that's that's what I feel is as a productive way of getting involved, and also, also I think just being aware of it, um, that we live in a society, and and that's why I think talking about women class becomes so important because 
you have to be able to talk about women who are uh, belonging to different social classes and they're being subjected to different types of models of oppression, you know, based on where they belong. Um, and one thing I'd like to add that, you know, the migrant worker story is not all murky and scary. Uh, there is also so much freedom there. Uh, when these women get on a plane for the first time, they go abroad, they live in a dorm, they put on a pair of jeans, they dance, uh, they go to the beach for the first time. It, it's, it's also a very, very liberating experience. And that's where the paradox really is, you know, um, that these, these jobs bring them and they make three times more than they're making in Bangladesh. And then they have washing machines, they have ACs, and they think that, oh my God, this is amazing. But then slowly you realize that, okay, this is another structure, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it's such a tight structure that they have to wake up every day, they have to go to work every day, you know? It's like they cannot cook their own food. And I think there's, there's something to be said about would these workers be treated the same way if they were men? You know, mm -hmm. uh, because we have male construction workers also from Bangladesh who are treated very poorly in Saudi Arabia, in, in Singapore, in Dubai, in places like that. And they also send home a huge part of our like remittance, you know, just a huge part of our economy. So it's, it's, I think it's also men and women in the outskirts. Um, and maybe men are treated in a different way and exploited in a different way, but because these women have always been associated with with women in front of a sewing machine, you know. So I think there's also a gendered assignment here that's going on. Mm -hmm. That you have, like, you know, if you see Made in Bangladesh, you have um, mostly young women in front of sewing machines and middle-aged men as supervisors. Right. So already there is this power structure, you know, um, and, and and that's something that I, I think that's also something that's going on here that even families from Bangladesh are sending their daughters or oh, go and earn for us, you know? It's your duty as a daughter to do that. And then, you know, or a mother, you know, she has to go. Women have husbands in Bangladesh who have, you know, taken another wife and the migrant worker woman is sending money home. So there's like so much going on here that My has God. to do with being, a yeah, that has to do with being a woman, that has to do with uh, how you're, uh, domestic labor, your sexual labor, you know, your labor uh, within within the space of the factory, how are all of these labors being exploited and appropriated? Like, you know, how, how basically the woman's body is appropriated in, in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the I, one of the things that I was thinking about while you were speaking is, you know, this idea of, you know, this class-based segregation <clears throat> that really allows, you know, women in these different um, strata, I guess, to be able to sort of ignore each other and ignore each other's um, causes. And, you know, you don't like celebrate each other's wins, but you can just look away so easily and not even understand, you know, kind of what's going on. So yeah, the, the fact that you were able to work, you know, through your filmmaking, were able to meet and collaborate with Dahlia, who then opened your eyes to this entire universe. Um, so, yeah, I think awareness is such an important tool, uh, but also maybe um, like transcending like your own sort of class and comfort zones. 
Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Because if I didn't meet her, you know, before that, I have worked, I've worked with women's rights organizations in Bangladesh. When I was at Smith, I would always like come home in the summer and intern with these organizations. Um, so I have, you know, I've worked with sex workers before and I've worked with, I, I've worked with these organizations, but that was not like a, a personal friendship, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you become friends with somebody, they, they give you more details about their personal life and you also see how, even though you're so different because of your upbringing, but there are commonalities because you're both women. And I think there's a universality to Shimu's story because, you know, uh, and even, you know, when I when I premiered under construction in Seattle, I had women, like a Japanese woman came out to me. She said, well, I have this exactly same relationship with my mother. You know, I had African-American women come up to me and say that, you know, I've had this experience with my husband. So I think mm-hmm. even though there is, we have to look at intersectionality, I think it's also nice to see that there is, like, I don't want to sound corny, but there is a sisterhood. You know, women mm-hmm. everywhere have shared the same experiences and they should be more, like, I think we should be more empathetic to each other, you know, across yeah. different class or race or whatever other boundaries because we do share the same same type of struggle. And what I learned from Dahlia about these, the condition and, and the details of life of a migrant worker, she wouldn't have told it to me the same way if I just did like a one-day interview with her right. um, in an office setup. So there's like a, a level of intimacy that you need for someone to be able to open up to you. Um, the the other thing that you mentioned, you know, when I asked what we can do to help, um, I really loved how you talked about education and empowerment. Um and it's it's something that I think about in my own life. Um, whenever anyone around me is in trouble, the thing that I want to do instinctively is to find a way that I can fix it. Um, but that's rarely the solution, right? I mean, first of all, I probably couldn't fix fix it because it's not my issue to begin with. But let's say I was able to resolve one thing. It's not a permanent fix, right? So the fact that you bring up, you know, support for, you know, education and empowerment um, so people can learn how to help themselves, that's such a powerful message that I think I personally need to be reminded. Yeah, because uh, when we when we went to release the film in Denmark, um, there was members from 3F, which is their uh, trade union, workers' union, and uh, they came, and Dalia got so excited because she was like, yes, I got training from 3F office in Bangladesh, you know? Uh, and then we went to Action Aid office, and she's like, yes, I, I received training from Action Aid. So you see these organizations, uh, they actually work, like Action Aid has been working in Bangladesh like for a very long time. Um, and 3F, they have their office. Um so there are different organizations which actually really are doing real work in the ground where these women can come in, they can get a book, they know how to speak, they know that they have the right to unionize, they have the right to negotiate. Um, and also the work that women's rights organizations do in Bangladesh, I think it's so important, you know. Mm-hmm. It's so important in, in supporting women, especially in the grassroots. When I work with Aino Shalish Kendo, I, I did their annual report for a bunch of years. So I, I, I kind of would go there for the summer and I'd kind of get an overview of all the work that they have been doing. And I saw how if a woman was battered, a woman was hurt, and she came to Aino Shalish office, she would get support. You know, she would have all these lawyers who would stand up for her and who would support her. 
so these women's rights organizations, the work that they do is is so important. And it has been so important in the 80s and the 90s um, to bring a level of awareness. One of the one of the examples I always give is when I was growing up in Bangladesh, whenever we talked about rape, it was always within a framework of stigma and shame and honor. Mm-hmm. But I think now when we talk about rape, it's within the context of like, this is... Um, this is like a, 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 this this man who's committed this rape is criminal and let's publish his photo on the newspaper. It, it's talked within a framework of justice and crime. You know, it's not talked about so much within the framework of shame and justice, shame and honor and, you know, stigma anymore. And I think that's just a very positive change in Bangladesh, I would say. We have had like a woman head of state for God knows how many years now. Mm-hmm. But that, and, and you know, uh, there's a rule now. I had a, I, you know, I teach at Bragg, so I had a student who became a government officer, and uh, everybody has to call like all the women sir, which I think is is a big change, you know, in a place place like Bangladesh, a big shift. Um, so there are some some things that are that are I think I think getting better. I a part of me doesn't want to end this conversation. Um, I know we've been talking for over an hour. Is there is there anything else that you would like to mention um, uh, that we haven't covered yet? No, I think because it's with you, I, I talk more than usual. It's nice. Oh my God, you are amazing. Your films have opened my eyes and also, you know, brought me back to, uh, you know, a lot of wonderful memories. And um, the this particular conversation has really, really uh, opened my eyes to a lot of new things and things that I'm going to like look into and research. Um, so thank you so much, not just for your time, but for your brilliance and for your contribution to the world, honestly. Oh, thank you so much. No, I, I, I feel like it's not, I, I'm just trying to tell some stories and I'm, I have things that I deal with in my own life too, but I'm, I'm grateful for the work that I'm able to do, you know, because I'm grateful to be able to connect with the type of, uh, people have been able to connect to through my work. Um, I worked with a lot of women who in made in Bangladesh, um, and I learned so much from from working with these women. And it's so great when you're when you're in the set and like it's all women and everybody gets their period on the same day. <laughs> it's quite amazing because as as women, I think working in cinema, we are always outnumbered in our own crew. Mm-hmm. So usually you'd be the only person getting a period, but then if it's like four other people also get it, it's quite amazing. Um, uh, I think I just have to add that. Um, I actually love that. And follow-up question, when you are shooting on location in Bangladesh, which from my memory, not the best for public <laughs> restrooms, what do you do <laughs> when you get your period? Well, it's, uh, I don't remember. Like for me, <laughs> you blocked it out. I ha- for, I think I blocked it out. For Made in Bangladesh, we uh, we had to make some sort of arrangements. Like sometimes we would have a uh, a van, which had a small bathroom in it. Uh, and then um, when we shot in the slum, we had a uh, we rented a room in a hospital, which was uh, close to the slum, and we would an emergency would go to the hospital. You know, okay. uh, to use their bathroom. Sometimes we use the some bathroom, and then um, made in Bangladesh. I think I was like outside a lot <laughs> because <laughs> it was in the village. Um, 
so it's been it's, it's been a very traumatic experience it's been something like significant because i think especially filming outside uh, with with women crew a lot of people don't uh, don't think about it but when when i'm the i'm i'm the woman and i'm i'm going to running the crew then of course i want that and then i want that for my actors i want that for my for my other women crew um so it's something that we 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 have to kind of figure it out and maybe have like for for me in bangladesh we had a little bit of budget so we could rent this room in a hospital where we could go when we needed so so many things to think about right all the logistics <laughs> it it kind of reminds me of um my dad's um business at his factory um my brother really pushed to hire a woman uh because in that in that management tier there were no women um and he was like no i want the new accountant to be a woman and he like really fought for it um and she's great but you know in in that pre-work to have her you know you think about accessibility but it's like accessibility in the most basic way it's not like you're thinking about like elevators and ramps and things you're like oh we need to make a bathroom that a woman can go into and a prayer room that's that a woman can go into and I was like yeah you know it's like so basic um quickly before we wrap up um where can people watch your films uh, if they are in Canada or the US? Well, unfortunately, um, Made in Bangladesh is not streaming in Canada right now. It was released in June um, virtually. It probably will be released in some sort of a, a VOD platform because we do have a Canadian distributor. Mm-hmm. And in the US, people can now watch it on Amazon Prime. They can rent it on Amazon Prime. And you know the film was released in Europe and it's going to be in Japan and China it's also available in Australia to stand so it's not i cannot say that uh, all Canadian audience can watch it right now but maybe if just to keep their eyes open for it it would probably should show up in some of some of the platforms i hope so i mean this particular podcast doesn't have a huge reach but i mean Hopefully somebody who has the ability to bring her movies to, I don't know, like Prime or Netflix or Crave, uh, maybe you guys want to get on it because they're so good. That was my PSA for whomever. Um, Rubaya, thank you again so, so, so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you, Farah. Yes. Same here. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 You've been listening to House Nine's Art and Humanity podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe wherever podcasts are available. House Nine is a collaborative graphic design studio, working with local and international artists, researchers, nonprofit organizations, and cultural institutions. We develop dynamic projects in all areas of interactive and print design. House Nine would like to acknowledge our design studio is located on unceded indigenous territory, and all members of the studio are settlers, whether descendants of colonizers or new immigrants. This island is called Jojage in the language of the Kanyokehaga, and Munyang in the language of the Anishinaabe. In English, this island is known as Montreal, and in French, Montréal. This island has and continues to be a meeting place for indigenous communities, as well as generations of settlers from all around the globe who have made a home here. As settlers, we must acknowledge that we benefit greatly from the colonial laws that have shamefully persecuted the indigenous people of this land. 
As we continue to live on this land, whether unable or unwilling to return to our original homelands, we as individuals want to decolonize ourselves and our actions. We are deeply indebted to the indigenous people of the colonial territory of so-called Canada for their continued stewardship of this land. As a studio, we are learning to act in solidarity with indigenous peoples in our work and in our day-to-day -day lives.